For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Good morning. So today is a, an auspicious, another auspicious day for us. This afternoon, we will be doing a Jukai lay ordination ceremony, precept ceremony, for three people who are all here. Alex, Wade, and David Ray. So this is one of one of the important ceremonies in our tradition, receiving the precepts. So I want to talk about the ceremony and some of the things that are involved in it. And also, this is a landmark Jukai ceremony for Ancient Dragon. I will be performing it together with Nyozan Eric Shutt, uh, one of my Dharma successors, who is the teacher of one of the three students receiving uh, the precepts. So I want to talk about the ceremony and what it means, and uh, we'll have some discussion. The ceremony is scheduled for two o'clock this afternoon. Everybody is welcome. You can uh, come back online or in person. Uh, so uh, without going into all of the procedures for the ceremony, in terms of the content, we begin with uh, invoking and chanting the names of Buddha. So it's homage to all Buddhas in the Ten Directions, homage to the complete Dharma in the Ten Directions, homage to every Sangha in the Ten Directions, homage to our first teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, who lived in what's now Northeast India 2,500 years ago, homage to Ehe Dogen Zenji, though homage to us session of bodhisattvas and ancestors. So this is, in many ways, a ceremony about the lineage of bodhisattvas and ancestors that we are continuing here in this time and place. Then homage to Ehe Dogen Zenji, who brought this tradition from China to Japan and actually uh, founded this, uh, these, this collection of 16 precepts. And then homage to Shogaku Shumir Daiosho, Suzuki Roshi, who brought this from Japan to California uh, in the lifetime of some of us. Um, and we, we are honored to have one of Suzuki Roshi's disciples, Zengyu, here with us online. And then homage, now uh, then we say, now may their presence and compassion sustain us. So we call on the ancestors as part of the ceremony. Um, and then we chant the names of Buddhas. So there are various. So there are various Buddhas. Shakyamuni Buddha is kind of our Buddha for this world system, but there are many Buddhas. So we chant to Vairochana Buddha, the pure Dharmakaya, the Buddha who represents the whole phenomenal universe and all other universes and metaverses uh, throughout space and time and who is sometimes depicted, embodied uh, in Japan as the great Buddha. There are large statues of Buddha, uh, like a Todaiji and Nara that 
see the, the, the ear is eight inches long. And it's a beautiful, huge statue. Anyway, Vairochana is the Buddha that is all of us and everything. Everything is this Buddha. This is a way of seeing all of reality as awakened. This is very important to us. And we chant some other names, Shakyamuni Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, predicted to be a future birth and next future Buddha, uh, the Lotus of the Wondrous Dharma, Bahayana Sutra. So the Lotus Sutra, which was uh, kind of basic to all of Japanese Buddhism, uh, or starting with the Zen and the Chiran and Pureland schools, uh, but, uh, but before that, in the, in the earlier schools, Anyway, the uh, Lotus Sutra, then Samantabhadra Bodhisattva, great activity, great practice, very important. And we're, we've been talking about and reciting the Avatamsaka, or Flower Ornament Sutra, for which he is one of the most prominent Bodhisattvas. Then all honored ones, this refers to the Arhats, the, the personally awakened ones great examples to us all, then the bodhisattvas and then the great beings, and Mahaprasnaparamita, the great perfection of wisdom, that is the emptiness and openness and <clears throat> boundlessness of all things. So I'm just going through the ceremony and talking about the different elements of the ceremony. The next part is renunciation. Uh, so I'll just read this, the text for the, for the ceremony. Walking the path of bodhisattvas is accomplished through the spirit and actuality of renunciation. And I don't think in the West we think of Zen practice so much as renunciation, but yes, we're going against the grain of our consumerist culture. We're taking this wonderful, beautiful Chicago uh, Sunday morning, or wherever you are uh, in the world, California, New Mexico. Uh, anyway, here we are, and we are renouncing possibility of walking around in a beautiful Sunday morning to be here together, celebrating awakening. So it continues, all the Buddha ancestors of the Bodhisattva precept lineage have practiced and are still practicing renunciation of all attachments, letting go of attachments, not being caught by attachments. Of course, as karmic beings, we all have attachments, aversions and, and uh, things we like, but we don't if obsessed or caught by them, this is the spirit of renunciation. It's, it goes on, renunciation is an unsurpassable way of harmonizing body and mind with the Buddha way. Giving up attachments, one is free, one is Buddha. And then in the ceremony, we cut some hairs from the heads of the people taking the ceremony. As a, as a symbol of that. So then we give the 16 
Bodhisattva precepts in our tradition. First, we give um, in the ceremony before presenting and naming the 16 precepts, we present to all of the people receiving them three things. Serene name card. So they are all going to be receiving new names. Bodhisattva names, Zazen names, names coming from the tradition, names chosen by Yosan and myself. And then they received the lineage papers. So in some ways, I'm going to talk about the precepts next, but and, and we tend to think of this ceremony in terms of these precepts as kind of ethical guidelines, and that's part of it. But maybe more fundamentally, and certainly in Japanese sutras and historically and today, connecting with Buddha is the heart of this. Taking refuge in Buddha, but also receiving lineage, lineage cards, um, lineage papers, which start with Shakyamuni Buddha all the way up at the top and then go through the names of the formal Zen ancestors. And this is historical and semi-historical. We don't know accurately all the names in India, uh, but there was somebody in each generation who passed this along. So to receive these precepts is to connect to a particular lineage going back through Suzuki Roshi, back to Dogen, back to the Sixth Ancestor, back to Bodhidharma, back to Shakyamuni, and at the bottom of the lineage papers, there's a red line going back up. So that each person receiving these precepts is Shakyamuni Buddha in some important inner sense. And, and also, with, in the, with the lineage papers, we have a uh, circle of women ancestors who were historically not uh, honored in the patriarchal systems of India, China, Japan, and early in the United States. But there were many women teachers and noble practitioners all through history, and we have a, a circle of their names which is also part of the lineage papers that all of these uh, people will receive today. And then the third part is a rock soup. So, Bo, can you show people your rock soup just to, as an example? Mm -hmm. This is something that is sewed by, sewn by each of these people receiving these precepts. And Hogetsu is our sewing teacher who's helped many, many people to do this sewing, and Wade is going to be taking this on for us, apprenticing to Kogetsu. So the, this Roksu is what is worn um, as Bo is wearing his, as a kind of miniature, it's a miniature of this priest, Okesa robe that Hogetsu and Aishin and Yozan are wearing. And on the back of it is inscribed the new name, 
of each person in Chinese characters, but we'll give the English a meaning. And then there's a saying, and then there's my name's on the left side. So uh, they will be wearing these roxas uh, starting today at any Buddhist event, um, but they will receive them for the first time in the ceremony. And there's a special chant that they will do, uh, break the road of liberation form this field of merit, wrapping ourselves in Buddhist teaching and we free all living beings. Um, and then they will chant that in Japanese, sign Japanese first course. Then um, the next part of the ceremony is something that we do all the time at service, the beginning of our services here. And we'll have a service after uh, this talk and discussion and announcements. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. This is uh, a wonderful chant to just acknowledge that we each do have ancient twisted karma from, well, in in East Asian Buddhist view for many lifetimes, or, but we can just see it as culturally from uh, many beings or genetically from all of our genetic ancestors, but also our cultural ancestors and our Buddha ancestors. Um, all our ancient twisted karma. And so how do we practice with this karma? Well, we acknowledge it. Sometimes some pieces of our tendencies and habits drop away. That happens. But, it's, but some of them are very deeply rooted. And the point of acknowledging our karma is to not be caught by it, to, not, to help us become familiar and intimate with our personal and collective karma so that it doesn't control us we're not obsessed by it, that we don't need to react to things based on it. And then in the ceremony, there's a part that's sort of esoteric that Nyozan will perform today, the Abhisheka in Sanskrit, the water purification. So to purify the space, to purify all of the people who are here for the ceremony. Then we get to taking refuge in the precepts. And there's 16 of them in our tradition. So I want to say something more about them. The first three are so important. It's the same as the three refuge, refuges. I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. So, you know, everybody present at these ceremonies is in some ways also taking these precepts. This is a collective ceremony. These three people will formally, publicly take on this tradition and these precepts, but we are all part of it. So to take refuge is to return home, to our deepest home. And in some ways, just I take refuge in Buddha includes all of it, the whole ceremony. You could just say I take refuge in Buddha, and that would be the whole ceremony. But we kind of elaborate on it. But taking refuge in Buddha means 
acknowledging, appreciating, feeling gratitude, returning to the home of Buddha, the Buddha that is each of us on our seat now here in the in our wonderful Lincoln Square Zendo or with our friends online to return to Buddha. Buddha just means the awakened one. To return to awakeness, to return to wokeness, which some some politicians these days are attacking. I don't know if they think that they're attacking Buddhism anyway. Um, yeah, but we take refuge in this. We take refuge in being awake. It doesn't mean we don't rest and, and take naps and sleep at night. It means that we're present with all beings and all aspects of the beings on our seat now. That's fourth. To return home to Buddha as the perfect teacher. And uh, then we have taken refuge in Dharma and Sangha. And those are not separate from Buddha. The Buddha, when he, one version of what the Buddha said when he passed away was, let the Dharma be your teacher. Take refuge in Dharma. So, we have a huge body of scriptures and commentaries and stories and teachings that we call Dharma. Dharma means the teachings. It also means truth or reality. And it's the teachings about reality. How do we take refuge in reality? How do we take refuge in what's really happening? Not in misinformation or whatever, but in what's what's happening in front of us, what we see and hear, and how we do that together. And the togetherness is very important. That's the third refuge. We take refuge in Sangha. Sangha means community, but it's the jewel of community. It's the community in the sense that community supports us, inspires us, and that we, in turn, also support and help community. So we help each other as practitioners. And, you know, there's a particular sangha like Ancient Dragon's End Gate here in Chicago, but there's also the sangha of all sanghas. So we're connected with many particular sanghas like San Francisco Zen Center, where where many of us have practiced uh, and where our lineage comes from. But there's many sanghas in the United States, in, in Japan, in China, in India, Southeast Asia, Europe, and Africa. So the community of humans, the community of not just humans, but all beings, to take care of this planet, this world, maybe not even just this planet, but all worlds connected to us. So Sangha, we return home to Sangha, to the community, and support each other, and help each other. And this is very deep. 
Thich Nhat Hanh said that maybe in this century, Sangha is the Buddha. So how do we support each other and work together? So those are the first three of the 16 precepts. And this system of 16 was put together by Dogen in 13th century Japan, although they all it all goes back earlier. But the next three, to embrace and sustain right conduct, to do good, to be helpful, to embrace and sustain all good, to not cause harm. And then one of the 16 that I find most important personally, I vow to embrace and sustain all beings. How do we see all beings as involved in this work, this Buddha work, this work of awakening for ourselves and all beings, all beings, all beings. So not just people in Chicago, not just Americans, not just white people or, or Hispanic people or black people or Islamic people or whatever, all people, but not just all human beings. We embrace and sustain the trees and the rivers and the lakes. We embrace and sustain all the beautiful bird song that we were hearing through Zaza. So there are birds singing all around us to celebrate this event today. And all the other animals and the flowers and the plants. Then we get to the 10 pure precepts or the 10 grave precepts, they're sometimes called. And um, these sound a little bit like the 10 commandments or something like that, but they're not. They're, they're not, thou shalt not. They're just descriptions of what it means to live in awakening. The cycle of Buddha does not kill. And they all have a positive implication too. So the disciple of Buddha supports life and liveliness vitality. The cycle of Buddha does not take what is not given. So sometimes translated as not stealing, but it's also about receiving what is given, receiving gifts, not taking what's not given. Number three, a disciple of Buddha does not misuse sexuality. So in early monastic Buddhism, this was about celibacy, but for our practice as lay people, and the priests also, in, the, in our tradition, how do we not misuse sexuality? How do we not deceive others? How do we not, how do we be respectful to our own and other beings, sexuality and gender? The cycle of Buddha does not lie. So that also implies supporting truth. By the disciple of Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. This, I think this is a very important one in our time. 
many people in our culture are addicted to alcohol or drugs or many other things. How do we support awareness rather than intoxication? You know, with the, the Dharma itself, Zen practice, Buddhism can be intoxicating at times. But we also just approach it as something that is um, that we appreciate and that we uh, share. So how to not intoxicate body or mind of self or others. And we have a recovery group that meets online Tuesday evenings from, from a Buddhist perspective, but similar to various other recovery groups. So we help each other to acknowledge and find ways to not be caught by intoxication. Disciple of Buddha does not speak of faults of others. It's the sixth one. And this is kind of subtle, I think. Um, it's not that we should never talk about difficulties in the world, in our society, in our own lives. But we don't, uh, we, we don't indulge in name-calling or hate speech or finding fault. We can talk about the issues, the problems that we see around us. In fact, it's important to do so. But how do we do so without um, finger-pointing, fault-finding? All of us, of what, from whatever opinion, you know, there are politicians in the world now who, who seem to be promoting a policy of cruelty. Others are promoting caring. And we can oppose cruelty without name-calling. So to not find, to not speak of faults in others, at the same time that we do address problems and suffering in the world. The next one is sort of related. The disciple of Buddha does not praise self at the expense of others. So this is, you know, especially for people who are taking refuge and receiving the precepts, it's, it's uh, possible for people who are practicing sincerely, it's possible to think, oh, great, I'm practicing. I've received the precepts. Wow. <laughs> um, we're doing this together with all beings. So uh, this can be very subtle how we, you know, think of ourselves as somehow, I don't know what, uh, more, better, or whatever than others. But we're all in this together, ultimately, really, really we are. The next one is the disciple of Buddha is not possessive of anything. And in some uh, traditions, this disciple of Buddha is, is not possessive of anything, even the Dharma. So whatever we have understood of spirituality, of truth, of caring, of community, of awakeness, connecting to reality, um, we don't hold on to that. It's not personal. It's not just yours. We do this together, really, really deeply. It's, it's something that is couldn't happen except in our collective space and time. So that's 
invoking the, the, the Bodhisattva ancestors is to see that this is something that has been, this tradition and this ceremony and these practices have been sustained and maintained generation after generation after generation from India to China to Japan, Korea, South Asia, California, now Chicago, and throughout the world. So we, we don't do this just for ourselves. Then the ninth of these precepts is one of, the, one of the precepts that seems to be most lively for people. Disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. This is the precept about anger. So all of us, of course, at times, we, there are things we don't like and we may get angry. We may feel anger. We may feel negative feelings. What's important is to not harbor ill will, to not hold on to anger, to not make it a harbor where then we develop hate speech and, and all of the terrible things that happen when there's prejudice against people just because of you know, what country they're in or, or what the color of their skin is or what religion they are. Uh, we don't harbor ill will. And, and personally, when we're having trouble with someone, family member, a co-worker, you may feel um, some negativity. But how do we not hold on to that? How do we not make that a harbor of ill will? This is very subtle. So when those negative feelings and anger arises, the practice, and I want to talk more about this, in the near future. The practice is not to hold on to that or not to make a big deal of that, but to actually look at what is going on, to really use that as an opportunity to examine our own heart minds and to see what can we do to help in a particular situation, whether it's a societal situation or a personal situation. With, with somebody, a coworker, for example, who is giving us a hard time, giving other people around them a hard time. How do we use this awareness helpfully? And it's not easy. It's not, you know, it's, sometimes it takes patience and skillful means and uh, attention to the situation. But again, it's, the point is, the precept is to not harbor, to not hold on to ill will. Finally, disciple of Buddha does not disparage the three treasures of Buddha Dharma Sangha. So that's, uh, we can do that in various subtle ways to think, oh, this isn't working for me, or, you know, this isn't really true, or whatever. Um, this person in our community is just being, being nasty. You know? Instead of seeing the community as something that is a, a living organism and the whole world, as a collective living organism. So, uh, I think uh, we tend to, um, there's more to the ceremony that will happen this afternoon uh, in terms of acknowledging uh, 
the ceremony itself and the people involved, not just the three people receiving the precepts, and not just Nirzan and I are performing the ceremony, but uh, all of us, many of us, who have helped to make this possible. So this is, for our particular sangha, for Ancient Dragon's Endgate, this is really a wonderful major event. Some of you remember our temple on Irving Park Road that we occupied, rented for 15 years. Maybe most of you, many of you were, were there. And it was a wonderful space. Now we have this wonderful Lincoln Square Center. It's smaller, but it's allowing us to perform the ceremony. And we've just, in the last couple months, done a practice period, two months, which time since 2018. And we did a three days of Sheen, the first multi day sitting since 2019. So uh, the whole world has suffered this pandemic and COVID is still happening. It's not that it's finished, but it's abated enough so that we are now resuming the practice. This is really wonderful. And part of that is doing this ceremony here today, this afternoon. And as some of you know, we're also, with all of this that is happening, we're also on the verge of purchasing a building not so far from here, down on Lincoln Avenue, that will be a long-term home for our Sangha. There's a lot of work to do, and it's not, it's not set completely yet, but almost. So... Uh, It's an interesting rich time. And the ceremony today encourages us to connect with the richness of time. With Suzuki Roshi in the 60s and early 70s in San Francisco, with Dogen and his successors, 13th century Japan, with Bodhidharma coming from China to Japan, from coming from India to China. Uh, anyway, and with all the women ancestors also who were part of helping all of that. So Sangha is a strange creature. <laughs> Sangha is alive. And Sangha extends through space, so many beings have been part of this Sangha either online or at Irving Park Road or here. And uh, also many beings are connected with us in time. And each one of us 
has a has a karmic sangha. All of the people you've ever known are part of what's happening on your seat right now. So this is a very rich, wonderful time. And of course, all the people, not just all the people you've known, your great grandmothers, your fourth grade teachers, your, you know, anyway. Uh, so uh, today's a day of celebration. Today is a day to enjoy. And we will activate the ceremony this afternoon. Everyone is, everyone is welcome. Two o'clock here in this room or online. But maybe that's enough for me to say. Um, questions about any part of the ceremony, about anything about the precepts, Yes, hi, in the back. Is this your first time here? Mm-hmm. Great, welcome. That, that's very auspicious for us. What is your name? Rob. Robert. Hi, Rob. Um, can you talk a little more about the um, Sangha of Buddha? Yeah, Sangha is very important. Um, you know, through the history, and I was talking about India and China, Japan, there are three great teachers in China who never had more than eight people in their Sangha. So it's not about how many, but Sangha is about the richness of our life. That we, that we, you know, uh, there are a lot of people, there are people here, I see online, who practiced for a long time on their own, and then uh, came to practice with an organized group. And it helps. It's possible for people to sit at home by themselves and do the practice, but to do it together with others is part of the spirit of this. So how, so Sangha, again, is not just the people in this particular organization. We have, I think, 12 or 15 people in our Sangha who are chaplains, including uh, one or two people here today who uh, take care of people who are ill or dying in hospitals and elsewhere, for example. So this is part of the spirit of Sangha is that we are supporting each other to do this practice, but also, and this Sangha particularly, uh, I, I really am so grateful to be part of Ancient Dragons and Gate Sangha because there are many people here who are doing many wonderful activities in the world, teaching grade school, teaching graduate school, working with computers, being therapists, um, many things, being chaplains, being social workers, um, martial arts teachers, uh, all kinds of helpful things in the world. 
And that emanates out of taking refuge in Sangha, to, to be together with others, doing this practice for the sake of awakening for all beings. Then, uh, and, and this takes time sometimes, you know. So, so uh, is this your first time coming to any organized Zen group, a Buddhist group? No. Okay, so you've been involved with other Sanghas. But you're welcome here. And actually, one of the things I really deeply appreciate about this Sangha is that many people here have practiced in other Buddhist or, or non-Buddhist traditions. We have an Episcopal minister who has been on our board who practiced with his Zen teacher while he was an Episcopal minister in the Southwest. And for example, and we have people here who practice um, Rinzai Zen. We have people here who practice Tibetan Buddhism. It's having this width of and breadth of background enriches all of us. So um, I hope you will. Uh, so today's kind of a special day, Rob. I hope you will come again, check the website schedule, and uh, join us. So part of Sangha is just being open and being, trying to be welcoming. Sometimes it's challenging in our world, but how do we welcome? Anyone, any person, all beings. How do we welcome the birds singing all around us as well? So that's a little bit about Sangha. Do you have a follow-up question, Pat? Uh, Damon online has a question or comment. Thank you, Tayan. Um, the precepts that I understand that you, you offer in your tradition are the kind of the... Um, traditional kind of short version and uh in the community i've been practicing in lately is the um here locally are the uh so-called plum village practicing in the tradition of tiknatan they have something called five mindfulness trainings that we recite once a month that are and when you take these uh they're it's sort of their version of the five precepts and they're kind of really put a lot of flesh on the, the original precepts. For example, the third precept regarding sexual conduct. Uh, the original precept is kind of skimpy. And so they sort of added on quite a bit that gives a little bit more guidance and, and flesh, fleshes out the original precept. Could you talk a little bit about why they would do that? Well, first of all, uh, I very much respect uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's order of inner being and his uh, precepts uh, of inner being. And actually, for the for all the people who take the lay ordination Jukai with me, I I give them copies of the, the order of inner being, uh, their precepts, and use them as commentaries. So. Um, uh, I would not say that our 16 precepts are a skimpy version of longer precepts. <laughs> uh, there are the earlier precepts, the Vinaya precepts from the early Buddhist tradition, which is the which is the monastic precepts, the monastic and mendicants, and uh, that's in the early uh, well Theravada and other traditions that that were that emphasized a practice of personal liberation. 
So, and that's a very noble practice of personally uh, liberating, awakening, um, and developing oneself. And, you know, in the Lotus Sutra, that's included as part of the Bodhisattva work because it, it inspires some people. So the point is that uh, all of these practices we do together, and, and you know, we've, we've talked about these precepts more, uh, but one of the things I, I uh, mentioned and want to stress is it's not just about following some ethical guidelines, although that is part of it, but it is this deep, ceremonial connection, personal connection to everything, to all Buddhas in space and time, to all awakened beings. So, yeah, uh, I think each of these precepts one can speak about a lot, and I have done so. If you look in, uh, on our website, on the podcast, or type in any one of these uh, Precepts, uh, you may find many other talks about it. There's a huge body of talks on the podcast. Anyway, uh, I appreciate uh, your comments. And yes, uh, and, and I, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, we, I, I've practiced since I started personally practicing Buddhism, Zen. I've, I was, I, I could say, would say fortunate enough to connect with the Japanese Soto Zen. Priest uh, back in New York, long, long time ago, uh, and so I've always been grounded in Soto Zen, and at the same time, I've also partaken of practices of other traditions and appreciate them. So I think, as I was saying, we're informed by all of the different traditions of spirituality and awakening. So it's not about you know competing who's who's. Uh, <laughs> whose lineage is better or something. We're all part of this uh, Mahasanga of uh, awakening beings in this world. So thank you very much for your, for your presence and comments. Other comments or questions about any part of this? Oh, Bo, hi. Hi. Um, I've been thinking about, you know, precepts a little bit recently and wondering, I guess my question has to do with like, you know, how, how do you practice these without falling into like righteousness about them, you know, which is alienating to, I think to people, it's like, you know, how do you practice awakening and then sort of have this also desire for others to awaken without pushing, you know, and without um, trying to control other people's behavior. Cause you, I, I can see the benefit, for example, of like not speaking ill of other people or not gossiping about other people. But, you know, <laughs> I find myself in that situation sometimes where sure. other people are and you're, you don't want to be like, you know, I'm a Zen Buddhist. I'm not cool with that happening right now. <laughs> um, so yeah. How not to like hold. Yeah. So that's the question. How not to be too, sort of righteous about them. Good. So there's one of the ten precepts is exactly about that. The cycle of Buddha does not praise self at the expense of others. And you don't do it inwardly either. Hmm. 
So, you know, we have various systems. We have the Eightfold Path, we have the six or ten paramitas, the various four Brahma uh, Viharas, we have various huge numbers of teachings in Buddha Dharma, Buddha teachings. And uh, the paramitas, the transcendent practices, are very helpful, I find, uh, amongst all of them. Um, and, you know, the practice of patience. So we may see somebody causing harm. We may see harm and cruelty happening in the world around us. And instead of just name-calling, you know, the people who are promoting that, how do we actually, you know, one of the, one of the parameters is later on is skillful means. How do we practice skillfully? This is a life long study. And it means patience, which also can be translated as tolerance. We, we all have shortcomings. We all have things we, you know, we all, we all have limitations of what we can see and appreciate and enact. So maybe some people, we might think that some people's shortcomings are much greater than ours. But it, it's, the, it's really the same situation. Mm-hmm. How do we help? And so, and so to try and ar- argue with somebody to persuade them to be um, caring and helpful rather than cruel, you know, based on their situation, they may not see it that way. They may not be so skillful or helpful to try and get into that kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. So patience, tolerance is... Pay attention. And our practice, the practice of awakening is to pay attention to, to whatever is happening. And so if we see somebody causing harm, of course, if there's something physically you can do to intercede to stop that harm, uh, you know, pulling somebody off from in front of traffic or whatever, uh, you know, we try and do that when we can. Uh, but how do we... Really, physically study. The practice of skillful means is to really pay attention to our, not just to the situation out there with the people who we see doing harm, but to ourselves and our prejudices about things. Mm-hmm. And then, how do we see something that might be helpful to say or do at some point? And we make mistakes. And it's okay. And it's important to make mistakes. We learn, but we uh, we make the effort to pay attention and then to be helpful. So, you know, what you're talking about is it's huge. It's it's you know a huge problem in our world today, uh, and it's easy to take sides and to see these are the bad guys. But you know what led there. What, what was their karmic background that led them to that? What are their fears and so forth? And, but that doesn't mean we, we, we say, oh, yeah, go ahead and, and, and uh, you know, murder these people or deport these people or whatever. You know, uh, we try and act to be helpful. But it's always, you know, a, a subtle process. Mm-hmm. And again, so these, these ethical considerations are very important. 
but also again, the ceremony is about just okay. We are expressing Buddha. Yes, Paula. Um, in light of that, um, what Bo is bringing up is, I think Buddhist practice encourages us to stay engaged. Yes, and that's a big part of it. Like, how do we stay engaged? The precepts kind of help give us guidelines on how to stay engaged, but like in in just practical ways, also with skillful means, to still be part of that conversation where everyone might be trash talking somebody, <clears throat> but then maybe skillfully bring up some a positive interaction mm-hmm. you might have had with that person mm-hmm. instead of trying to add fuel to the fire or completely check out. Well, I don't do this, so mm-hmm. I'm gonna pretend I'm not even here. And there, that's where the skillful means comes in and, and tight in, like you mentioned, like maybe patience and kind speech and um, compassion. Like how, how can I find something positive to say here that doesn't make me point fingers at everyone who's negative? You know, and that, of course, so that takes a lifetime, I think, to develop skills like that. Right? And sometimes we never do comfortably like you were saying. Yeah, it's a process and it's a lifelong process. But also sometimes, and I'll call on you in a second, Paul, um, but sometimes um, there's nothing to do. Sometimes, so it might look like somebody's checking out, but they actually might be paying really close attention and waiting for an opportunity to do something positive. So it's... Which would be active listening. Mm-hmm. Active listening, yes, exactly. Good. Thank you know, you. I'm all about Samantha Padra, so <laughs> I'm always coming at it from that angle. <laughs> Me too. Yes. <laughs> You're all about what? Samantha Padra, the Bodhisattva of great activity. Oh. <laughs> so, a plug for those who don't know about the different Bodhisattvas, there's a book I did called Faces of Compassion about Bodhisattva. Speaking of great <laughs> and, and has his own chapter, and yeah. other Bodhisattvas have their own chapter. There's, yes, so um, Jan, I'll call on you, but Paul had his hands up first. Thank you. Basically, in our, in our tradition, <coughs> the precepts are all about not, not making two not making it good and bad. So so in the Zen tradition, there's no way to break the precepts. You cannot break the precepts because that would be big, making a good, making the good and the bad. So, but following the precepts creates a land in which Buddhas appear. And if you want to, if you want to have it, if you want to save all sentient beings, if you vow to save all sentient beings, which is what taking the precepts is about, then you then you were then you were vowing to live in a land where Buddhists will appear. But that doesn't mean that the there's any way. What's that? I didn't hear the last part. Could you say that again, please? You vowed to live in a land where Buddhists will appear. So but there's that doesn't mean that there's a that there's a way that you can break the precepts and you can go against the precepts. That there's it's a unity. You cannot they're all they're they're one. That that, that is that is the basic of our teaching as you as you know from the class we've been doing with Red. Anyway, that and that was Suzuki Roshi's teaching. The only precept is not to make two. So that's that's the that's the important understanding. So there's not a, there's no good guys and no bad guys. There's no there's no yes and no. But but following the precepts allows Buddhists to appear in this world. Thank you, thank you. 
Um, Shan? I'm very troubled by Thich Nhat Hanh. And, um, you know, he was in Vietnam during the war, and he saw terrible things. He saw his people being... Uh, please be clearly and loudly for people online. Uh, I was talking of Thich Nhat Hanh, and he is uh, Vietnamese uh, by origin, and suffered through the Vietnam War, and uh, really um, had a lot of experiences that most of us would avoid and uh, and it's really almost ama- it is truly amazing that he came through these experiences as he did and became a great teacher for uh, the western world uh, I have to say that but uh, the first thing that starts out is um, this is the practice of one who is wise. And I think right away, well, that counts me out. You know, I'm yeah. not going to read this. And then this is how you um, uh, find your friends. And then I think, well, my friends don't qualify here. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just stopped by the first sentence of most of the things that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote. And I, not that I have really studied it, but I find his approach, in spite of the admiration you have for what he's been through and how he turned out, um, he's a very, very difficult person for me. That's well, thank you for that testimony. Um, I enjoyed, I've done a couple of, uh, longer practices with him. I've never been to Plum Village, but, uh, and, and, uh, my friend from the Tignan tradition wants to respond, but, um, you know, this is why Buddhism includes many, many teachings and many, many traditions. And if Tignan Han's tradition doesn't inspire you, fine. I'm glad you're here. Doing so does then. There, there are, you know, this is the this is the heart of skillful means, which we were just talking about. That the Bodhisattva of compassion, Hanzeo and Avalokiteshvara, uh, we have images of here. She, she is about studying different beings and seeing the difference contexts of how people respond to the teaching. And so there are many different traditions, many different lineages, many different teachings, and um, some people respond to some teachings or some traditions more fully than others. And that's because we're all different. So skillful means is if, if that's a tradition that doesn't appeal to you, fine. Don't worry about it. Just, you don't have to have a, uh, you know, I've never heard, I've never heard you talk about this before. So obviously you're not, you don't have a vendetta against taking on <laughs> teachings. Um, but, you know, it doesn't appeal to you, fine. And, I, you know, I could get into the particulars of each of those sayings, uh, 
I forget now the one that you said it starts out with. Uh, this is this is the not practices Roman. This is the something of one who is wise. Yeah, so that's it. So that's a way of talking about Shakyamuni Buddha as the wise one. So the so taking refuge in Buddha is to take refuge in the awakened one who is wise. And all of the different permutations of that historically in the last 2,500 years, you know, have, have different flavors. And that's exactly right. That's, you know, so we, we can talk about emptiness, uh, which a lot of people like, and we can talk about suchness, which other people like, and there's, they're, you know, two sides of the same coin. So, uh, yeah, we don't have to, uh, so... The idea of Sangha and Mahasangha is just to respect the different traditions and that some that don't appeal to you may be good for some other people. And you know, so you don't have to take his gospel, you know, the, the Buddha compared to Christian uh, Christian gospels, uh, what is it? I'm sorry, I'm not a Christian. Jesus taught for three years, is that right? Yeah, Buddha taught for like 40 years. So there's just all these different flavors of, of what the Buddha taught as awakening practice. So, uh, you know, use and enjoy what is helpful to you. So anything that's helpful, whether it's Buddhist or non-Buddhist or, you know, all the other teachings or practices or awarenesses in our world today, if it's helpful... Great. So, did you want to respond on behalf of Thich Nhat Hanh? <laughs> I, I, far from me to do so. Um, but I, I just wanted to uh, say that I'm grateful for our colleagues' uh, forthrightness. Um, there, uh, I have to confess that I, there are times that such reactions uh, well up in me as well, and that... Um, I think I'm going to take this opportunity to just kind of, uh, when when they do well up again, just try to be observant, find out more about where where they're coming from, and take them as a an opportunity for a teaching inside myself, um, and so forth. So again, thanks again to our colleague for for talking about this. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you for being grateful. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, last. We're getting close to the end. Wait, please. Jan, I I think you're more wise than maybe you give yourself credit for. (laughs) Um, Your comments always surprise me, and they always manage to teach me a little bit of Dharma in a way that I never would have expected. So thank you for that, and please be kind to yourself. Amen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, okay, Asian, last word. Just wanted to say that I think that um, so an attitude that's helpful when we think about how we hold and practice the precepts is humility, because we can never practice the precepts perfectly. So um, when we think about you know how somebody else isn't practicing them or isn't practicing them the way that we might want them to, it maybe just helps to remember that um, we are all doing this imperfectly. With, with one mistake after another. And we're all connected, as Andy said, not two. We're all connected. So, thank you all very much. You're all welcome to come to this ceremony this afternoon.